0: Welcome to Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. I'm Isaac Butler. There's a story that takes place in 1601, when Shakespeare was in his 30s. The details may or may not be true. Historians argue about almost every aspect of this story. But one version of it goes like this. There's this guy, the Earl of Essex. He was a favorite of Queen Elizabeth's until he fell out of her good graces. He embarked on a military expedition to Ireland that ended in disaster. And when it was over, he disobeyed royal orders and stormed back to England, surprising the queen in her bedchamber. Pretty soon, he was broke, humiliated, and being investigated for treason. So he and his allies began plotting against Elizabeth. They gathered people with gripes against the queen, and they stockpiled weapons at Essex's house and prepared to launch an armed assault on the court. And to pump themselves up, they decided to commission Shakespeare's company to perform a play. And the play they chose was Shakespeare's Richard II. So, why a play? And why this play? Well, if you're going to overthrow the monarch, you need more than just a bigger army. You need to believe that you have a better claim than she does. You need to believe she doesn't really belong on the throne in the first place. In other words, you need some kind of story about what political theorists call legitimacy. Now, one way we see legitimacy work in our country is this. Whenever a president is elected, there are millions of people who voted against him. The way our system's supposed to work is that those people acknowledge that he is, in fact, entitled to be president. We might hate the outcome of the election, but we accept that it's a legitimate process for picking our leader. And this is true even if that president lost the popular vote, so long as they won the electoral college. It might be maddening if they weren't your candidate, but the loser still concedes and the winner still moves into the White House. But what if you believe the president didn't win fair and square? Maybe they conspired with a hostile power to meddle in the election. Or maybe you think they're a foreigner with a forged birth certificate. Well, that's when things get messy. So how does legitimacy actually work? Is it just about laws or norms or popular will? And what happens when a system has a crisis of legitimacy, like the one we may be in right now? What happens when a ruler's opponents start to say, you have no right to rule over us? Well, Richard II is the story of just such a crisis. Now, King Richard believes there's no way he can lose his legitimacy. He thinks he was placed on the throne by God. But his cousin Henry Bolingbroke thinks Richard has abused his position, that he's become a tyrant who no longer has any right to the throne. Richard and his supporters say, all that's just a pretext. It's legal mumbo-jumbo meant to justify Henry's power grab. And here's the thing. They might both be right. In the end, Henry's rebellion succeeds, at least to the point where he takes the throne from Richard. The Earl of Essex didn't fare as well. He and several of his comrades were found guilty of treason and executed. Getting rid of a bad ruler is hard enough. Properly establishing yourself on the throne is even harder. How do we create a better, more stable future if it turns out legitimacy is just another word for what you can get away with? Act One, Sad Stories of the Death of Kings. Richard II is one of a handful of Shakespeare's plays that is actually about politics, about the schemes and machinations of people trying to gain or hold on to power. And it was part of an overtly political genre of theater that we know as the history play, a genre that was pretty new in Shakespeare's time. A history play isn't exactly a comedy or a tragedy. It's a play that tells a version of historical events to the audience, kind of like a biopic is to us. The events of Richard II took place a mere 200 years before Shakespeare staged them. So we can think of the Elizabethans watching Richard II as kind of like us watching John Adams on HBO. We know it's not a documentary. We know we're seeing a fictionalized version of the characters in the events. But we also think of the characters as people who actually lived, people we might already know something about. So where did the history play come from? And how do we know it was explicitly political? Well, here's Kristen Bazaio, a professor at the University of Richmond.
1: Queen's Men is the first company that produced history plays. And so they were founded, co-founded actually, by Edmund Tilney, the master of the Revels, and a man named uh, Sir Francis Walsingham in 1583.
0: These men, Edmund Tilney and Sir Francis Walsingham, were political operatives, not theatrical impresarios. As master of revels, Tilney was the guy tasked with reviewing every script by every theater company before it could be performed publicly. He could demand changes and suppress plays outright if he deemed them too subversive. And Walsingham, well, he was the queen's spymaster. The Queen's men toured all over the country. They were kind of like a supergroup made up of actors from other existing companies. They were replacing the old, often explicitly Catholic plays that toured the provinces with new, Protestant ones, because Catholicism was officially illegal and Elizabeth was working hard to establish the Church of England. Their history plays had clear heroes and villains, and titles like The Famous Victories of Henry V. It made sense to use theater for propaganda. Most people couldn't read, and theater was very, very popular, particularly in London.
1: Our biggest sort of form of pop culture is television and film, and the public theaters were a lot more like that. So everyone knew about it, even if they didn't necessarily go, but pretty much everyone went. Your average audience was about 1,000 people a day, and the average popular company put on about 200 productions a year.
0: And when audiences attended Richard II, they saw a story about a bad king being overthrown and about his usurpers' frustrated efforts to establish legitimacy. That story goes like this. It's 1398. Richard II is king, but his grip on power is unstable, and his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, is beginning to make trouble for him. Bolingbroke's faction believes Richard is a lousy king. He assassinated his uncle... He's raising taxes to fund unpopular wars. He surrounds himself with flatterers who give him bad advice. Eventually, Henry becomes enough of a problem that Richard banishes him from the country. While Henry is in exile, his father, John of Gaunt, takes ill. On his deathbed, Gaunt really lets the king have it. He even accuses Richard of killing his uncle. Oh...
2: Had thy grandsire with a prophet's eye seen how his son's son should destroy his sons, from forth thy reach he would have laid thy shame, deposing thee before thou wert possessed, which art possessed now to depose thyself.
0: Richard is furious. He seizes Gaunt's lands and money, taking Henry's inheritance. That's a breach of the compact between the king and his subjects. He can't just take their wealth. But Richard believes that as king, he is above the law. He thinks he's got a kind of unlimited executive privilege. He will turn out to be very wrong about that. Henry comes back to England from exile. He says he's there to get his lands back and to rid King Richard of his evil advisors. Henry's forces start winning battles. They capture and execute some of Richard's counselors. Richard's allies go over to Henry's side. It becomes very clear where this is headed. Henry is now after the throne itself.
2: Eventually, Richard surrenders. What must the king do now? Must he submit? The king shall do it. Must he be deposed? The king shall be contented. Must he lose the name of king? God's name. Let it go.
0: At this point, the action slows way down. Shakespeare uses an entire act of the play to take us step-by-step through the bureaucratic procedures and rituals that strip Richard of the crown. But it's important to note, Henry doesn't take the crown. Not exactly. What he and his men do instead is get Richard to name Henry his heir and then step down so that Henry can legally inherit the throne. He has the military might and the support he would need to just seize power, but instead he painstakingly establishes his legitimacy. And when Richard hands the crown over, he performs a kind of reverse coronation.
2: Now mark me how I will undo myself. I give this heavy weight from off my head, and this unwieldy scepter from my hand, the pride of kingly sway from out my heart. With mine own tears I wash away my palm, With mine own hands, I give away my crown. With mine own tongue, deny my sacred state. With mine own breath, release all duties, rights. All pomp and majesty, I do forswear. My manners, rents, revenues, I forego. My acts, decrees, and statutes, I deny. God, pardon all oaths that are broke to me. But Henry's careful plan has a fatal
0: flaw. To make the succession 100% kosher, Henry needs Richard to do three things. He has to appoint Henry as successor, he has to abdicate, and finally he has to sign a document attesting to his crimes and agreeing that he was worthily deposed, that this whole transfer of power is on the up and up. Otherwise, Henry's just a garden-variety usurper and not the rightful king of England. But Richard balks at that final step. When they ask him to sign the document, he's already lost the crown. They have no more leverage over him. So he just refuses to do it. I spoke with Peter Lake about this. He's a professor at Vanderbilt and the author of How Shakespeare Put Politics on the Stage.
3: What you see in those those scenes towards the end of the play is an elaborate attempt to stage manage that sort of transition being disrupted by Richard, who who will only collaborate to a certain extent. And so. There's a sense in which there's an attempt to, to establish the legitimacy of Henry IV's succession, and you see it being systematically, as it were, undermined by Richard, until Bolingbroke has to just say, oh, he's OK, well, just, just, just you know, give me the crown, get off the stage.
0: So Richard is locked up in a castle, and Henry is now King Henry IV. But that doesn't mean everything's settled. There are people out there who still think Richard is the rightful king, there are uprisings against Henry, and there's a plot in the works to assassinate him. So long as Richard is alive, he's a threat. But Henry can't just kill him. The whole point of having Richard step aside was to make the transfer of power legal and relatively peaceful. Straight up executing him invalidates all of that. Yet Richard just will not
3: sign the document. It just doesn't work. And then, you know, Henry's left. With the crown, with Richard still alive, and his legitimacy still at stake, and it's in that context that he, well, connives at the very least Richard's death.
0: Here's how Henry connives Richard's death. He loudly says, have I no friend who will rid me of this living fear. A couple of ambitious hangers-on know what he means, and so they assassinate Richard. So Henry's got what he wanted. He's the king, and he doesn't have a rival. But he didn't get what he really wanted, which is an unimpeachably peaceful and lawful transfer of power. He doesn't have unchallenged legitimacy. When the killers bring Richard's body back, Henry is appalled, publicly at least. He rebukes them, banishes them, and vows to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to atone. Lords, I protest my soul is full of woe that blood should sprinkle me to make me grow. Come, mourn with me for that I do lament and put on sullen black incontinent. I'll make a voyage to the Holy Land to wash this blood off from my guilty hand. March sadly after, grace my mornings here in weeping after this untimely beer. Remember when I said that history plays were invented by the crown as a form of propaganda? Well, you might be thinking, this story doesn't really sound like propaganda for the monarchy. And you'd be right. The play shows the exact mechanisms for deposing a sitting monarch if you don't like them. And it shows that rulers aren't as protected by God as they like to claim. The early published versions of Richard II are missing the scene where Richard hands over the crown. Now, it could be Shakespeare hadn't written it yet, but there's some chance that it was censored. It could be that our friend the master of revels found it seditious. So we have to ask, were people in power right to be worried about this play? Act Two, The Craft of Smiles. If you're a monarch or a courtier, Richard II must be a bit disturbing. Nowhere does it show us a king with a clear right to rule. And at times, the play feels like a step-by-step guide to overthrowing your leader. The first three acts show Richard losing his legitimacy as a ruler, which creates an opening for him to be deposed. The final two acts show Henry's frantic attempts to establish his own legitimacy before he throws up his hands and has his predecessor assassinated. Shakespeare builds an almost lawyerly case against Richard during the play, and it all starts with the death of his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. Now, if you were sitting in the Globe watching the play, you'd likely know who Gloucester was. Either you'd learn the history yourself, or you'd seen an earlier play about his death. So you know that his death is all about royal power and the relationship between the king and the nobility. Here's Oregon Shakespeare Festival's Julie Felice Dubiner to help us sort all of this out.
4: There was a lot that happened before we meet Richard and Mowbray and Bolingbroke and and all of that at the top of the play. Richard, he became king when he was 10 years old. There was a series of councils that were set up. So Richard was sort of beholden to this group of councils.
0: Richard runs afoul of this system of councils and of parliament about a decade before the action of the play. He's spending too much money. He wants to start all these wars, and parliament and the nobility try to rein him in. The leader of this effort? Well, it's Richard's uncle, Gloucester. And at first it works. But then, a couple of years later, Richard manages to regain his power. Things don't work out so well for Gloucester and his allies.
4: He has them banished and arrested. And Gloucester, who is his uncle, he gets sent away and he, is, he mysteriously dies. But it's not really that mysterious. He was probably smothered by somebody on Richard's orders.
0: Everyone believes Richard had his uncle killed, but they think they can't do anything about it. Richard is king. The king is chosen by God. It's not like they can just arrest him, right? This is how John of Gaunt, Henry's father, explains the problem in the play. God's is the quarrel, for God's substitute, his deputy, anointed in his sight, hath caused his death, for which, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge. For I may never lift an angry arm against his minister. One thing John of Gaunt and Richard agree on is that the king is divinely elected. Richard is prone to saying things
2: like, We were not born to sue, but to command. Or, not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord. At one point, Richard claims that God will send angels
0: to fight on his behalf. His ideas of kingship are very old-fashioned, and they're also very continental European. Richard's mother is French. He's technically Richard of Bordeaux. And France during this time has a far more absolute view of the monarchy. The king is chosen by God and there aren't a lot of checks on his power. But it's not that simple. What Bolingbroke and his allies realize is that in 14th century England, the monarchy doesn't exactly work that way. Yes, the king is divinely elected, but that doesn't mean the king can do whatever he wants. The king's authority actually comes from God through the people. The official saying is the king rules in parliament under God. The technical term for this is a limited participatory monarchy, and England fought hard to get to this place. This is why Richard seizing Gaunt's lands is such a big deal. He's violated the agreement between the king and his people, what was known as the Sovereign Subject Compact. Here's Kristen
1: Bazaio. So, the Sovereign Subject Compact is basically an early version of the social contract. And in it, the sovereign owes his or her authority to the people, and the people owe their loyalty back to the sovereign. So in practice, what this means is that people will defend the monarch, they'll obey the monarch, as long as the monarch doesn't infringe upon their rights. Now, in England, this was common law rights. And so those included inheritance, uh, if you had property, the passing of property from father to son, It included the right to continued life, so the monarch is not allowed to just arbitrarily and indiscriminately kill citizens.
0: This idea goes back to the 5th century. It's the basis of the Magna Carta, and breaking that agreement is what causes Richard's downfall.
1: He breaks the contract first, which lets everyone else rebel against him and demand that he fulfill his obligations.
0: But as one of his advisors points out in the play, Richard is making a mistake that could come back to haunt him. By attacking Henry's inheritance rights, Richard is also undermining his own legitimacy. After all, he's only king because he inherited the crown. Take Hereford's rights away, and take from time his charters and his customary rights. Let not tomorrow then ensue today.
2: Be not thyself, for how art thou a king? but by fair sequence and succession. So what about the
0: guy who makes it happen? The guy who comes back to England to claim his birthright? Henry Bolingbroke is one of the more mysterious characters Shakespeare ever created. Think for a moment about Shakespeare's other usurpers, like King Claudius in Hamlet, or Macbeth, or even our friend Brutus from the last episode. Now, all these guys, they have a clear moral and ethical perspective on their behavior. They have their reasons, and they communicate those reasons directly to the audience. But what about Henry? We don't know his motivations or what he thinks. You can come away from this play seeing him as a hero or a villain. Is he a champion of good government deposing a tyrant? Or is he a power-hungry narcissist hiding his ruthlessness behind abstract legalisms? Shakespeare doesn't tell us. One thing that's very clear, however, is that Henry is a skilled politician. And his model of legitimacy is entirely about mechanisms of politics, like gaining allies, understanding bureaucratic procedure, and rallying popular support. It's not about God. It's about the people. Richard actually figures this out pretty early on. Here he
2: is, describing Henry's common touch. Ourself and bushy, Baggett here and green observed his courtship to the common people. How he did seem to dive into their hearts with humble and familiar courtesy. What reverence he did throw away on slaves, wooing poor craftsmen with the craft of smiles and patient underbearing of his fortune as t'were to banish their effects with him. Henry is never alone on stage in the play, and there's only one
0: scene where we see him talking in private with a loved one. The rest of the time, he's in front of other nobles. He's always performing. And after Henry gets the crown, something happens. His performance kinda curdles. He loses the common touch and seems austere and remote. His political acumen makes him look two-faced. And his scrambling to shore up his power has a surprisingly high body count. For all his attempts to gain the throne with minimal bloodshed and chaos, Henry has to order a lot of deaths to feel secure. Just listen to the chilling opening lines of the play's final scene.
2: Welcome, my lord, what is the news?
4: First, to thy sacred state wish I
0: all happiness. The next news is, I have to London sent the heads of Oxford, Salisbury, Blunt, and Kent. The manner of their taking may
2: appear at large discoursed in this paper here.
0: The formality of the language, with those perfect I ams and rhyming couplets, makes the execution of those four lords feel like routine business. Shakespeare is telling us something here about the nature of power. There's a legal and theological belief that he's playing with that we know as the king's two bodies. Basically, if you're an English monarch, you have two different bodies your actual body and the body politic. That second body has different legal powers and responsibilities from the first, and it's immortal. Thus, the king is dead. Long live the king. When Richard steps aside, he loses that immortal body and Henry gains it. But what the play suggests is that part of the cost you pay to get that second body is your humanity. Here again is Kristen Bizaio.
1: Well, so what's so interesting about Richard is that his primary problem is that he's fine as a person. He's just a terrible ruler. And so there's this powerful acknowledgement of the difference between what someone is as a king and what someone is as a person. And this happens with Bolingbroke as well. You know, he goes the other direction, right?
0: Henry may be a better, more stable king than Richard, but Richard dies with his humanity restored to him. And he gets to deliver one of Shakespeare's most beautiful soliloquies right before his death. And the thing is, Richard knows this shift will happen. He even says it to Bolingbroke as he hands the crown over to him.
2: Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets filling one another, the emptier ever dancing in the air, the other down, unseen, and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs whilst you mount up on high. What he's
0: articulating here is a theory of how history works that was widely believed in Shakespeare's day. History is cyclical. Shakespeare shows us history moving through cycles of power. There's the ruler, and then there's the usurper, who becomes the new ruler until he is usurped. These cycles were a big headache for people living in the late 16th century. There's no way to build a peaceful, prosperous society if the king is whoever cut off the previous king's head. Every new monarch has to spend his time watching his rivals, executing them if they get too ambitious or build too much support. Legitimacy is a way of forestalling this cycle. If we all agree that the guy in charge has a right to be there even if we don't like him, he can get on with ruling. So Shakespeare had good reason to think about legitimacy. Yet he also gives us a story in which legitimacy is fundamentally unstable. That's a provocative thing to do in a play. So what might it have been like to watch this play at the globe? And who might it have provoked? Act three: in the remembrance of a weeping queen Shakespeare wasn't the only person interested in the story of Richard the Second. A lot of people in London in the late 16th century are thinking about parallels between King Richard II and Queen Elizabeth I. We know this because people are publishing chronicles of his life and several playwrights are writing plays about him. But there's also these anonymous pamphlets circulating in London during Shakespeare's time. They had to be anonymous because they're seditious in nature, and they use arguments from history to critique Queen Elizabeth.
3: They got to Richard II... They go back to Edward II, they go back to periods of English history where the succession has been contested and where the crown has been particularly influenced by evil counsel and malign favorites. And the idea is to try and create these parallels between what's happening now and what might happen in the future if things go wrong.
0: As we talked about in the last episode, Elizabeth has no children, and she's near the end of her life. The succession is a fraught topic that she won't let people discuss publicly. This is terrifying because England had seen a lot of violent succession crises recently, and also because of what's happening across the Channel.
3: France is undergoing, in the, in, through, the, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, a series of dynastic civil wars. Uh, one of the great claims the Tudor monarchy makes, which the Elizabethan regime makes for itself, is we've saved England from that fate. We've preserved you know, a certain sort of peace and prosperity. One of the things that critics want to say is, well, it's not as great as you say it is, and it's about to fall to pieces.
0: The pamphleteers use history to make this argument. And one thing they see when they look into the past is something called conspiracies of evil counsel. That's where self-interested advisors manipulate the Crown into doing bad things. According to the pamphlets, Elizabeth has fallen victim to this. And it's exactly what John of Gaunt warns Richard about in the play. A thousand flatterers
2: sit within thy crown, whose compass is no bigger than thy head. And yet, encaged in so small a verge, the waste is no whit lesser than thy land.
0: If you're anti-Elizabeth, there are other parallels as well. Like Elizabeth, Richard is childless. He doesn't have an obvious heir. Richard and Elizabeth both tried to concentrate more power in the crown. They both raised taxes. They both fought unnecessary wars in Ireland. And they're both considered insufficiently masculine. Elizabeth, of course, is actually a woman. But Richard is effeminate, too. As Julie Felice Dubiner says, this is a particular contrast from the kings immediately before him.
4: Up until this moment, the previous couple of kings were all warrior kings. And then you come up with Richard, who is, you know, he was a patron of Chaucer. He built Westminster Abbey. He was interested in the, the finer things and also sort of the complaint about him being French that he's Richard of Bordeaux is also, you know, sort of this whole English versus French thing, that the French are all just a bunch of, you know, useless fops and the English are the ones who like we're we're gonna go to battle. And I think when you look at the play, like that, that sense of how flowery Rich, Richard's language is, how much he invests in the poetry, and then you see you know, Bolingbroke coming right up the road at him, and you're just like, dude, that guy's going to crush you.
0: <laughs> the murder of Gloucester might resonate too. Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a competing claim to the throne. There were plots to have her replace Elizabeth as queen. And after breaking up one of these conspiracies, Elizabeth had Mary executed. So imagine you're living in London and you hear people complain about Queen Elizabeth. Or maybe you check out one of these pamphlets. She's a woman. She's power hungry. She doesn't have an heir. She's surrounded by sycophants giving her bad advice. She's raising taxes to fight stupid wars. She murdered her own cousin. One day, you go to the theater to take in a show. And what's this? Here's Richard II, this effeminate fop. He's power-hungry. He doesn't have an heir. He's surrounded by sycophants. He's fighting stupid wars. He murders his own uncle. You'd probably think, hey, this historical play has striking contemporary relevance. Elizabeth probably saw the parallels herself. According to an account from many years later, in the spring of 1601, an archivist gave Elizabeth a catalog of the artifacts at the Tower of London. As she flipped through it, she got to a page about Richard II, and she looked up and said to the archivist, I am Richard II. Know ye not that? So this is a play that Shakespeare's contemporaries thought had a lot to tell them about their current political predicaments. Can it help us understand our own? Act Four: The Breath of Worldly Men. We don't live in a Christian monarchy. Whatever legitimacy means to us, it doesn't mean divine anointment via hereditary succession. So what can we learn from this story, or this play? Well, one thing the play makes clear is that when it's very difficult to remove a head of state, they'll get away with crimes, including, in Richard's case, murder. And absent some mechanism like elections, there's no way to get rid of them without violence. And, as much as Richard would hate to admit it, legitimacy and popularity are tightly connected. Richard is brought down by two errors of judgment. He attacks the principle of inheritance, which is the supposed source of his own legitimacy. And he loses the support of the elites of his society. Henry, on the other hand, gives a much better performance of being king than Richard does. He courts the common people with humble and familiar courtesy, as Richard puts it. And when he seizes power, he does everything he can to follow proper procedure, the entire time he claims to be acting for the sake of the larger system of government and its security. But in the end, he has to resort to violence. He can't get what he wants without it. And for all his political skill and common touch, that act of bloodshed ends up undermining his reign. To see that, we have to look beyond this play to the three sequels that Shakespeare wrote in the years after the play's premiere. Together with Richard II, this quartet is often called the Henryad. The next two plays, Henry IV, parts one and two, tell the story of the rest of Henry's frustrated rule. The final play, Henry V, is a chronicle of the achievements of his son, an irresponsible playboy who matures into a charismatic warrior and master politician. Richard's murder echoes through the whole quartet, At the end of Henry IV Part II, King Henry lies on his deathbed, and he realizes he never made it to the Holy Land to wash away the stain of Richard's death. And he never made it because his rule was beset by rebellion and internal conflicts that required his constant attention. One of the reasons for those rebellions is that Henry wasn't next in line for the throne. When he became king, he skipped the line of succession. Richard loses his grasp on the crown by murdering one relative and disinheriting another. By the end of Richard II, Henry has done the exact same thing. The cycle has continued, and Henry IV's legitimacy can never be uncontested. It's up to his son, Henry V, to redeem the monarchy itself. But how does he do it? In part, he does it simply by inheriting the throne. Just one orderly, hereditary succession is enough to restore a patina of legitimacy to the crown but the other way he does it is to follow the advice his father gives him on his deathbed.
2: Thou art not firm enough since griefs are green, and all my friends, which
0: thou must make thy friends, have but their stings and teeth newly taken out. Therefore, my Harry,
2: be it thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. That action hence borne out, may waste the
0: memory of the former days. It's advice that would be familiar to plenty of modern politicians. If your poll ratings are soft, if you're caught up in a scandal, if the way you came to power is contested, try starting a war and just watch how everyone rallies behind you. That's exactly what Henry V does, and it works. He sweeps aside questions about his legitimacy by making people like him and it works well enough while he's alive. But after he dies, those questions bubble up again, helping to fuel the Wars of the Roses. And in Richard II, those civil wars are explicitly framed as God's punishment to England for the original sin of usurping a sitting monarch, even though that sitting monarch needed to be removed. God and the people, the two sources of kingly legitimacy, They're in conflict in the play, and it takes almost a century and a civil war to sort out the aftermath. Legitimacy gets complicated in our system, too. When our political system is working smoothly, we're kind of like Richard. Legitimacy seems straightforward to us. But when we're in crisis, we realize how muddy, complicated, and contradictory legitimacy can be. And it doesn't take much for a cunning politician like Henry Bolingbroke to take advantage of it. Sometimes a leader's charisma can overpower everything else. Sometimes politicians break the rules, and sometimes they get away with it because there's no one to stop them. And in Richard II, at least, these clashes come at a cost. And sometimes that cost is blood. That's our show for this month. Our next episode drops July 10th. If you'd like to read along, we'll be discussing King Lear. I'd like to thank my guests for this week's episode, Peter Lake, Kristen Bazzio, and Julie Felice Dubiner. Our actors this time were Abe Goldfarb, Sid Solomon, David Rosenberg, and Daryl Lathan. If you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe leave us a review so other people can find out about it. If you're a Slate Plus member, there's a bonus episode waiting on your device right now, featuring the Washington Post's Jacob Brogan and Slate's own Laura Miller discussing Richard II and what it means for us today. At the top of the episode, I mentioned that the peculiar history of the Earl of Essex is a great source of controversy among Shakespeare scholars. Well, soon we'll have a piece up exploring that controversy and what may have really happened with his misbegotten rebellion. Look for that and for everything else related to this podcast at slate.com Shakespeare. Also, I'll be making a special appearance at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival's coronation ceremony on July 16th, talking about all things Richard II. Find out more at hvshakespeare.org. Lend Me Your Ears is produced by Chow 2. Slate Plus's editor is Gabriel Roth, a king of beasts indeed. I'm Isaac Butler. Thank you for listening.